0: Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the show, a double feature, two Jewish perspectives on Jewish-American political discourse, anti-Semitism, and Israel-Palestine. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's ACE reporter Ron Campius. But first, Professor Dove Waxman of UCLA joins us to discuss how the Jewish American community has responded to the October 7th attack, the debate over the usefulness of the settler colonial paradigm, defining anti Semitism and debates within the Jewish community over what is and isn't anti-Semitism. The big part of that being whether or not anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Similarities between the Palestinian American or Arab American and Jewish American experiences and much, much more. And yes, we will talk about Israel's bombardment of Gaza. You may or may not agree with Dove's views on that. Although I feel like Dove is a figure that will manage to ruffle the feathers of both anti-Zionists and Zionists alike, which is interesting and, you know, I always like to present a parallax view. So with that in mind, let's get to it with... Dov Waxman. Welcome to Parallax Views, guest. I'm really happy to be speaking with uh, Dov Waxman, the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Professor of Israel Studies, UCLA, and author of such books as Trouble in the Tribe: The American Jewish Conflict Over Israel, and the Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. What Everyone Needs to Know. How are you doing today?
1: I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. All, all things considered, I think we're all both uh, shaken yes, by the exactly. past month. Yes. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was, uh, you know, I've done a lot of shows on Israel-Palestine. I have my own biases, I would say, um, because I I know a, a lot of, uh, I know people in Israel, but I know a lot of Palestinians, so that causes me to have some biases And one thing, though, that has been concerning me is what I see as uh, anti-Semitic responses uh, to the October 7th attack. And I wanted to have you on to talk about that. I know a lot of Palestinians and Arab Americans, uh, especially where I'm at right now in Florida, Santa's land, feel very lonely. But I've also heard that uh, from Jewish Americans that I know, that there's a sense of feeling alone um could you maybe explain what that feeling of loneliness that many uh, american jews particularly progressive american jews uh are experiencing right now is
1: yeah you're absolutely right that is uh very much a uh widespread sentiment i think across much of the american jewish community um over the past month or so um and i think it uh it's driven by a couple of factors first of all for American Jews in general, um, there is a sentiment that people and institutions um, didn't respond to the uh, massacres of uh, Israeli civilians and others on October the 7th in the way that uh, many Jewish Americans would have hoped for, um, that there was either a, a uh, silence in some quarters um where they might have previously if it had been another group uh been more vocal in expressing condemnation uh, in other quarters there was actually uh almost an approval of hamas's attack or at least a uh an, a a failure to really unequivocally condemn it um and so many jewish americans Felt that it in, in people's responses or lack thereof to what was the worst single-day massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, that those responses didn't seem to convey a um a a a, real, a compassion or empathy for uh the victims of uh Hamas. Um, for the Israeli civilians in particular and and for some people that uh, lack of response or that failure to demonstrate empathy or compassion um, is interpreted as kind of signaling a lack of regard for Jewish lives that whereas you know uh, other lives or Palestinian lives uh, matter to these people Jewish lives didn't seem to matter so that's the kind of broad sentiment um which you know we've has come up you know it's on uh, we've heard it expressed about university administrations but it's also been expressed about you know local high schools city councils generally this sense of you know people didn't respond to what was really you know unquestionably and absolutely barbaric uh um and and just you know um, just shocking atrocities in the way that many Jews would have expected had those victims maybe not been Jewish. So that's part of it. For liberal and progressive and kind of left-wing American Jews, there's another element to this, uh, which is that, you know, they have been really, many have been upset and and, and really disgusted at times by the reactions of others on the left, uh, people and organizations whom you know, Jews on the left, progressive Jews, consider their allies, consider them to be part of the same movement. Uh, many left-wing progressive Jews who are themselves critical of Israel and of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, saying, "Well, you know, we criticize Israel. And we also think, you know, uh, Israel has mistreated the Palestinians, and that the Palestinians deserve, you know, self-determination or equal rights." Um, but that doesn't it mean that you can't condemn um, the, you know, mass slaughter of young people at a music festival or the, um, you know, the killing of babies and young children sometimes in front of their parents. And so the the way in which some people on the left, and I don't think it was necessarily, you know, most people on the left, but there was certainly those, and we heard, you know, their comments kind of amplified, um, who basically seemed to suggest that, you know, uh, these were settlers, and therefore uh didn't really, you know, they kind of essentially had it coming to them, or that uh Hamas's actions was a um a, somehow a, a response to uh the you know, the blockade of the Gaza Strip and the suffering of Palestinians there, and that somehow that um, you know excuses or or um justifies even, Uh, Hamas's actions. And so there was all of those kinds of reactions on the left and many, many left wing and liberal Jews, I think, really felt that they, those reactions betrayed what they believed to be the universalist principles of people on the left, that if you're committed to human rights, and if you're committed to this, you know, the same um, commitments that lead you to oppose the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, for example, those same human rights commitments and universal values should also be applied when anybody, when any innocent uh, person or when any civilian is uh, affected or killed. Um, And that didn't, and they, and people, some people and some organizations didn't seem to do that.
0: One thing that has really surprised me, I've seen some very nasty comments. Um, You know, I've seen multiple times people posting things On social media, like, why don't, you know, these Jews just go back to Poland and things of that nature. And I, I find it upsetting and disturbing. And it's interesting to me because I've talked to people that are not just, uh, left-wing, but I would say left-wing and anti-Zionist, uh, specifically people like Jeff Halper of the Israeli committee on housing demolitions. And he would describe himself like Peter Beiner as a, um, cultural Zionist, uh, uh, someone who believes in the one democratic state solution, um, so this idea that that Jews and Arabs can live together on this land. Now, I understand that people say that's a, a lofty ambition, but I, I don't see how you could tell a person like that who believes in the same cause as many of these leftists, say, one democratic state solution to just go back to Poland. It, it's, I mean, it's really offensive stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's, that's part of, you know, there's there's lots of different ways of being an anti-Zionist and there's lots of different uh, approaches to that. Um, and I think, you know, so I don't think it's necessarily anti-Semitic to be an anti-Zionist or that anti-Zionism is, you know, uh, sh- I don't think it should be uh, conflated with anti-Semitism as, as sometimes or quite often happens. Um, but there are some versions of anti-Zionism which are anti-Semitic. Um, And, you know, a version of anti-Zionism that holds that uh, Jewish Israelis basically um, have no right to be there and should just, quote unquote, go back to where they came from is basically an anti-Semitic form of anti-Zionism, not only because um, it, uh, you know, fails to acknowledge the fact that Jewish Israelis, even if you think they shouldn't be there in the first place, even if you take issue with like the, uh, with the Zionist movement and uh, settlement of Palestine, you could say, you know, even if you think that was wrong and misguided for whatever reason, you could still accept the fact that there are, this this community exists today and they're living there. And in fact, have lived there now for many generations and therefore as individuals, they have rights and as Jews, they have uh, collective rights. And um, I think it's quite possible to accept that and be an anti-Zionist. And somebody like Peter Levin, for example, maybe you know, would fall into or, or fall into that category. It's absolutely yeah. Possible. I think he would call yeah.
0: himself a, a cultural rather a cultural than a political Zionist. Zionist. Yeah, right.
1: Um, but but you know, we've also have seen these expressions of anti-Zionism, which basically regard all Israeli Jews as uh, settler colonists who have zero, not only shouldn't have been there in the first place, but it shouldn't be there today and shouldn't be there in the future. Um, in many ways that is is closer to kind of Hamas's uh, anti-Zionism, which basically isn't willing to record real rights to Jews. And that is, um, I think, you know, even if it's not motivated by anti-Semitism, it's definitely anti-Semitic in effect because it would lead to the mass expulsion or even genocide of, of Jewish Israelis. I, I want to ask you in that regard, I've
0: had a few discussions now with different guests about uh, the the sort of settler colonialist paradigm. Is that inherently anti-Semitic or does it just have
1: anti-Semitic expressions? I don't think it's inherently anti-Semitic. I mean, I, I generally don't think most things are inherently anti-Semitic. I think it's a question of how they're expressed, um, you know, what motivates it, which we obviously can't always know, right? So we can't know what somebody's intentions are what their motivations are and also what are the practical consequences or what the effect of it has so you know you can um hold that zionism is a settler colonial movement as many academics do um without necessarily having any sort of animus towards jews you just may not think that zionism uh, simply reflects a kind of age old yearning for jews to return to the ancient homeland but rather is a kind of modern a settler colonial movement um akin to other settler colonial movements now i do think that is a uh analytically not some i don't think it's simply wrong but i think it's incomplete as an understanding of zionism or, or of the history of zionist settlement um but as a kind of theoretical framework it's it's uh one that many academics use. And I wouldn't want to say that that's anti-Semitic, but I think we can see the, the, the danger of that. And I honestly didn't really appreciate this danger myself until October the 7th or maybe October the 8th and seeing the reactions, because I kind of always, you know, I teach uh, about the settler-colonial power I'm in my class. And I ask students to, you know, compare and contrast Zionism with other um, examples of, uh, with other settler-colonial Uh, examples and see how it's similar and different. So I thought, you know, it's just a kind of academic paradigm. It's just a theory which can be, like any other theory, useful to some extent in illuminating certain features of Zionism and also some of the differences. Um, What I didn't really fully recognize or appreciate was how that framework can lead certainly some people to a view that says, well, if... Zionism is an example. Is, settler, is a settler colonial movement. Israeli Jews are colonists, and therefore, decolonization in a violent manner of trying to essentially, you know, um, violently decolonize and drive them out is therefore acceptable. Um, and and that somehow people would would believe that the the you know the it's appropriate if Zionism is a settler colonial movement to actually seek to physically expel, drive out um, and kill uh, Israeli Jews. And so I would say now, you know, I still don't think it's anti-Semitic to to argue that Zionism is an example of settler colonialism. But I do think you need to then talk about, well, what does that mean for the Jews and the living there today? And you need to make clear that that doesn't, That that framework doesn't necessitate a kind of, you know, um, doesn't necessitate stripping them of their rights or and in particular doesn't doesn't call for or justify mass murder. And unfortunately, clearly some students and even some academics, you know, um, somehow believe that that does. I mean, we heard people, you know, saying in the aftermath of October 7, things like this is what decolonization looks like. Um, And and thereby suggesting that, you know, that it is somehow appropriate or necessary to engage in mass atrocities. And I think anybody who embraces the the settler colonial paradigm needs to make clear that that doesn't mean that Jews, Israelis living there have no rights um, and therefore are legitimate targets for violence could you in the other direction of that
0: um and maybe this could lead us to a discussion of what i would call the different types of zionism because i don't think zionism is a monolith i i think there are certain formulations of zionism that are more extreme than others so on this show before i've covered with shau McGee, you know the history of kahana so is that also true with zionism where uh there could be formulations of Zionists thought that go beyond a a call for self-determination into something rather extreme and often violent?
1: Absolutely. Well, first of all, and and, and as I said, first of all, in general terms, if we think about um, kind of mainstream Zionism as as historically practiced, it, it has led to the mass displacement of Palestinians. So I can understand why Palestinians... Uh, particularly regards Zionism as a settler colonial movement because, in terms of the impact it had upon them, right, it looks like other settler colonial movements. It, but you know, it doesn't matter from the Palestinian point of view what the motives were of those Zionist settlers, right, or what was what was the, you know that they understood that that they were coming home uh, in a sense, not seeking to conquer another territory for profit or to pursue the aims of some imperial power. know, from the perspective of the displaced Palestinian, it's still, you know, what matters is that they lost their land and that they were um, either forced out from it or otherwise displaced. So I I, I think in general, you know, even if it is true that for Jews, Zionism represents this movement of, you know, national liberation, if you like, and self-determination, for Palestinians, it means and has meant historically something very different. I think it's possible to have both of those understandings. It's in fact necessary to think about what it means for, for Jews or for many Jews and what it has meant for many Palestinians as well. And I certainly wouldn't say that Palestinian who thinks of Zionism as nothing more than settler colonialism is anti-Semitic for doing so. I can totally understand why they would take that view. But you're right, beyond that, there are, I mean, part of the problem with the way in which Zionism is discussed on the left is that it's often treated as a monolith and it's often associated with its most extreme adherents uh, the most far right you know whether it's um you know to nowadays somebody like Itamar Ben Gvir who's a kahanist who's in the israeli uh, government you know and that that is kind of taken he's taken as somehow emblematic of zionism as a whole and that doesn't recognize that Zion, there has never been a single Zionism. There's always been multiple Zionisms. Well, I was going to say and, there's
0: like uh, the history of labor Zionism, which exactly. was more socialist.
1: There's exactly. Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism, et cetera. Exactly. There's many different, there's historically been many different Zionisms. And even to this day, there are different forms of Zionism. And even, you know, we might say, well, so part of the question is who, who gets to define Zionism? Who gets to say what Zionism is or stands for is it you know Benjamin Netanyahu is it the Israeli government um, is it Palestinians I think there are all sorts of different ways of understanding Zionism some ways of understanding Zionism are entirely compatible with upholding the rights equal rights for Palestinians in in Israel Palestine saying that you know just as Jews uh have uh rights uh so too to palestinians these are two uh you know national communities that both have uh rights to self-determination or, or at least to e- equality within a single state and, and there are other formulations of zionism which are kind of supremacist almost uh or not almost they are su- basically expressions of jewish supremacism which hold that only jews and uh, jews exclusively have rights uh in Israel-palestine and that they are, you know, sometimes the terms like they're like the landlords of the of the territory. And Palestinians are at best kind of tolerated guests. Um, and that toleration is contingent on their good behavior. That's the kind of right wing uh Zionism. So, you know, there's very many, there's different approaches. There's always been different approaches among Zionists to what what was once called the Arab question. You know the, the fact of how can Zionism realize its um aspirations given the presence of another population in this territory what does that mean and there's and and then you know one of the main differences today is um in the West Bank um in what some refer to some Jews called Judea and Samaria because that's the question of like does Zionism continue to need? the expansion is what is the territorial borders of uh, or the desired territorial borders of israel and i think in the west bank today you know we can see a settler colonial project essentially right backed by a country a state israel you know providing financial incentives for settlers jewish settlers who essentially colonized the west bank and those as that as that colonization process has happened over the last 5 decades that's led to the you know displacement ongoing displacement of palestinians so i think in many ways you know we we what zionism as zionism is practiced today in the west bank specifically um that form of zionism is one in which has been um, oppressive to palestinians i think that's undeniable
0: You've written a book uh, called Trouble in the Tribe, The American-Jewish Conflict Over Israel, and I don't think a lot of people realize how deep that divide goes at times. Uh, You know, before I interviewed you, I saw that there were some articles in JNS uh, attacking you for not being, you know, pro-Israel enough, Uh, you know, and of course, I just read an article today from the Middle East Forum attacking J Street, which I would say is a pro-Israel lobby. Uh, sort of a, a an alternative to, APAC, uh, and this article basically said J Street is pro Hamas, um, and I I feel like people don't realize there are uh, Jewish progressives and liberals that are attacked very hard by, you know, right wing Zionists.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say I probably get more frequently attacked by you know Jews and uh, and others on the right. Than from the left, in so far as that, I think often you know it's true with many many communities. If you challenge the kind of orthodoxy, uh, if you're within a community, if you're within a group, and you um, are you dissent from the kind of communal norm or the communal the dominant position, that you're likely to be exposed to a lot of attack and basically you know being derided and called a traitor. Oh, for Jews, you get called a self-hating Jew, which is basically being called an anti-Semite, essentially. And yeah, or, or worse, uh, you you know, um, you get called uh, a capo, which is the term that was Jews for whom, who collaborated with the Nazis during the Holocaust. And so left-wing Jews and, and critics of Israel um, have routinely get called that. Um, and, you know, and worse, it's not just a question of like, in um, the vitriol and the name calling, but also uh, finding oneself excluded from Jewish spaces or disinvited from uh, appearing in certain spaces uh, because of that. So, yeah, and that's, I mean, so there's really, and there's long been a um, a bitter argument uh, over Israel within the American Jewish community. It's intensified over time. Um, in this moment over the last few weeks, you know, that hasn't been as, much on display, because most Jews have have kind of rallied together, although you still see Jewish organizations that are very critical of Israel's response. But, But yeah, I think sometimes people don't realize, you know, they see American Jews supporting Israel, they see the major organizations that support Israel, they assume that those organizations reflect the views of most Jews, when in actual fact, most Jews are actually more critical of Israel than the mainstream organizations that claim to represent them. And there is, um, you know, and there's a lot of survey data that shows um, how, you know, how critical most Jews are of Israeli government policies and, and of the Israeli government's treatment of the Palestinians, and especially younger Jews um, who are, you know, m- m- even more critical than than older Jews uh, toward Israel.
0: What is your view in that regard on, you know, I've read articles, I believe I read an article even in... Um, tablet magazine but it, don't quote me on that because I I forget the publication but um I, I've seen s- some commentators say that you know these groups like Jewish voice for peace uh should just be exiled now from the Jewish community or undueed what do you make of this kind of discourse?
1: Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate um, the way in which uh, people want to kind of, you know, exclude and even uh, argue that they that people whom they disagree with or organizations they disagree with are somehow not Jewish. Um, and I, I think you know it's it's really wrong to call into question people's uh, identities. Um, you know, it's not for me to determine who is or who isn't Jewish. Personally, I, I, you know, most, for example, the most many Jews aren't religious, don't observe any sort of Jewish religious laws. Uh, but does that mean that they're not Jewish? Well, it would be in the eyes of some ultra orthodox Jews. But I think this this way now that people are arguing that some Jews on the left or on the far left are have because they oppose Israel or they challenge Zionism, they no longer should be considered Jews. And I, I think, you know, we can disagree. Um, and in fact, I think you know the history of, of of Jewish history is a long history of disagreements. One of the things that um, you know I, I I take kind of pride in as a as a Jew is this long disputatious history. Is the fact that you know even in Jewish religious texts they don't have one single uh, perspective; they tend to have arguments, and that is you know very much a, a, a central feature. Of Jewish culture and Jewish politics. Um, and but but there was a there was a period of time where there was this very broad um, and strong consensus in support of Israel. And so some people, particularly on the right, want to, want to basically try to maintain that by um you know excluding or kind of canceling, uh, excommunicating, if you like, other Jews. And my own view is that. Actually, Jews, as well as other uh, religious groups, have to accept pluralism among their ranks, have to allow for a range of political perspectives and opinions, and and for Jews, a range of political positions on Israel. This actually leads into my next
0: question, and it's a topic that I initially didn't know how to tackle, but um, this idea of canceling, say, Jewish Voice for Peace or anti-zionist jews and exiling them from the jewish community um it it brings to mind the idea of um dual loyalties so what I mean by that is uh you know a figure I've covered Jonathan Pollard on this show in that case and it's interesting because Pollard will say today actually I I think people should have dual loyalties and you know uh he said in times of Israel uh people should uh if they're working for the government Spy for Israel. Um, and I've covered that story and have had people say, "Well, this must be how all Jews think." And I'm like, "No." Generally speaking, it's just a trope used by anti-Semites. Um, I don't know if you want to address that issue because I have met um really ultra-nationalist Jewish people that seem to feed into the the dual loyalties trope or say that they actually believe in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think so. You know, ever since the state of Israel was established, there's been this you know, question of how should Jews relate to Israel and, and what should be, if any, their allegiance, if you like, to Israel. Um And, you know, for one, first of all, most Jews kind of voted with their feet in the sense of, you know, most American Jews at least have stayed in the United States and choose, they could move to Israel, they could take citizenship. There's a law of return that allows them to do that, but they choose not to. Most Jews, I think, consider themselves first and foremost American. And even if you, and you look at their survey data, you'll see that you know, in their voting behavior, Israel is like way down on their list of, of concerns. Like many, you know, the media very often gives this impression that when American Jews go to the voting booth, you know, Israel is foremost in their minds and they're going to pick which party or presidential candidate they vote for based upon. Who they think is best for Israel? That's not true at all. That's true for maybe a very small number of uh, either very, very staunchly pro-Israel or very religious, mostly Orthodox American Jews. Maybe you know no more than a few percent of the American Jewish community who would you know vote to, uh, based upon which candidate or party they think is best for Israel. For the vast majority. Though they care about Israel, I mean they're attached to Israel in the sense that they want it to exist and they think it's an, a good thing that there is a Jewish state or a place or a Jewish homeland at least, um, and maybe a, a place of refuge where they could escape if need be, or their children. Um, they they um, you know, that doesn't mean that Israel is determines either their voting behavior or their like their daily life. So I think it is it is an anti-Semitic canard to claim that most Jews are more loyal to Israel than the countries to, in which they live. I mean, and that that, that anti-Semitic idea long even predates uh, the establishment of Israel. There was, before that, there was the belief that Jews were just more loyal to each other than to the countries in which they live. The fact is, um, you know, that, that was said, that's been claimed for a long time, despite the fact that Jews, in their behaviour, for example, you know, serving in the armed forces, fighting wars in for the countries in which they lived, and and and, and doing everything to prove their loyalty uh, to these countries. So I think mo- the, the vast majority of American Jews are, um, you know, care about Israel, identify with it to to some degree, but absolutely um, see themselves as Americans, are loyal to America. And you know when they vote uh, or, and in, when they think about their political ideas, you know they do so first and foremost as Americans. Um, what is e- in a way easy for American Jews and, and less so for Jews in other diaspora communities is that their American identity and their pro-Israelism has historically gone hand in hand. In other words, you know they believe that they can be fully American. And support Israel because America supports Israel, and they believe that their support for Israel is entirely consistent with their values and their commitments as Americans. This was something that uh, you know uh, Justice uh, Brandeis famously talked about. He was one of the early uh, American Zionists, and talking about how you know he he said to be a good Zionist was to be a good American, and to be a good American is to be a Zionist. So these things are entirely compatible, and I think most American Jews believe that to be the case. So, you know, and that's why they think of Israel as this, you know, fellow democracy in the Middle East. And so supporting Israel is consistent with American values and interests. Um, and because the United States government supports in Israel, they don't have to, they're not going against the position of their government. For Jews in some other countries where their government or their state is much more hostile to Israel, that is much more of a conflict then. I mean, I grew up in the United Kingdom, for example, as you could probably tell from my accent. And, you know, when I was a kid, we did have conversations, which to my mind now, like I can't quite understand why we were having these conversations, but they were conversations like, if there was a war between Israel and the United Kingdom and England, you know, what would you do? Now, this is kind of a, a very bizarre question for somebody to be thinking about in the 1980s as I was out when I was growing up. But actually in the 1940s, there was, you know, there was a, a Zionist insurgency against against Britain, which was then the colonial power in Palestine. So my grandfather did have to confront that. So he was in, in the British Army. Do you think that,
0: American Jews um, or just the Jewish diaspora in general and say Palestinian Americans or Arab Americans in a weird way have something in common there because I, I hate to say it, but I, I've seen a lot of people uh, accuse Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans of having dual loyalties. And for as much as I understand, there's that big controversy about Rashida Tlaib and from the river to the sea. But I don't think she's working for Hamas, as yeah. some people have claimed. And I think it's unfair that she's constantly having to prove that she's not some terrorist. Uh, Absolutely. Do, do,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. no, I completely agree. I, I mean, I think Jewish Americans and Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, I mean, um, there's a lot of commonalities um, in 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 some of the... I mean, there are differences insofar as the Arab American community, for the most part, are more recent... Uh, um, immigrants in the United States, so that's been really kind of a post 1960s emigration. And so, in terms of the degree to which they are integrated, acculturated into American society, it's more recent than Jewish Americans, for the most who, mo- who it mostly arrived, you know, between the eighteen eighties and nineteen ten. So there's a different period um, in which they arrived, and and arriving in, in a different different America, if you will. But actually, many of the same issues of of, um, how do you maintain your these cultural identities over time, differences between the younger generation's attitudes and their parents' or grandparents' attitudes, questions about their loyalty as Americans, suspicions about their political radicalism. I mean, when Jewish immigrants were arriving in the 1900s to the United States, you know, um, there were those on the right, and especially uh, kind of white supremacists, who basically were saying, you know, these are all radicals. They're going to be anarchists and communists, right? I, and that, I was going to yeah. say,
0: not, not to interrupt you, but this also has happened with, um, you know, I have some Italian-American ancestry. Exactly. It's happened with Italian-Americans where... We were accused
1: of having dual loyalties to the Vatican. Exactly. No, this is a very exactly. It, it was it was said about um, yeah and being radicals and being dangerous political radicals. Um, and so you know it, it connected with uh, fears domestically about kind of political extremism and violence. Um, and so Jewish Americans and others immigrating in that mass wave of emigration were targets of that kind of, and now we've heard, well, now going back to the post 9-11 years, you know, some of the, it's now Muslims as also radicals, only it's a different form of political radicalism. It's kind of Islamism or Islamic fundamentalism, if you will. Um, And so some of the same discourses, um, some of the same ways of depicting these groups as others and I think for both Jewish Americans and Muslim Americans, these are both what you I would call racialized minorities in, in, in the sense that they're not racial group. I mean, there aren't any racial groups, but they are, particularly in the minds of kind of white nationalists and white supremacists, they are racialized. They are thought of as having these kind of immutable characteristics um, that make them automatically subject to suspicion and and not fully American. And so one of the tragedies, many ways, of the Israel-Palestine issue is that it makes it so much harder for Jewish Americans and Muslim Americans and Arab Americans to ally together on their common interests here in the United States. There's a range of common interests. um, You know, first and foremost, fighting against Islamophobia and anti semitism, which is often connected in the United States, Um, But it's difficult for them to kind of forge those uh, alliances and work together because the Israel-Palestine issue often drives them apart. And we've seen that over the last few weeks.
0: I just had a few more questions, if you have a a few more minutes here. Um, You know, sometimes I think some of the younger people I know today think of anti-Semitism almost solely in terms of the holocaust and i I of course don't want to underplay the holocaust but i think that causes people to forget or not realize that there's a long history of anti-semitism so much so that we even find it in jewish folklore like with the story of the Prague golem you know there's a lot of generational trauma there could you discuss that
1: yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, this is one of my qualms, I would say, about the emphasis on Holocaust education as the kind of antidote to antisemitism. You know, typically when, particularly when some celebrity makes some antisemitic remark, you know, the uh, the response is, well, let's take them, invite them to the Holocaust museum. Or, you know, when you hear about antisemitic incidents at schools, people say, well, they need to learn more about the Holocaust. Of course, I think people should learn about the Holocaust, and it's shocking how much ignorance there is about the Holocaust, given the fact that there are all these Holocaust museums and all of this um, school educational programs. But the problem with the focus on the Holocaust is that is the most extreme manifestation of anti-Semitism, um, and it can suggest to people that you know, oh, an anti-Semite is a Nazi, is somebody you know in jack boots doing a, a, a Z and. Actually, that may be the most extreme form, and those are the most hardcore anti-Semites today, are kind of neo-Nazis. But in fact, anti-Semitism is much more widespread, not necessarily hardcore ideological anti-Semites, but anti-Semitic beliefs and attitudes and stereotypes and tropes. And and so by focusing the attention on kind of the most extreme, the most... uh, hardcore versions of anti-Semitism, it can blind people sometimes to the more quotidian and much more common forms of anti-Semitism that exists, including the ones that they might have themselves. Because, you know, like other forms of racism, many people have internalized anti-Semitic stereotypes. And we often draw on anti-Semitic tropes inadvertently, just as people might do with anti-Black racism. So I think, unfortunately, there's this tendency to kind of exceptionalize anti-Semitism, um, you know, equating it with the Holocaust and therefore removing it from a broader discussion about uh, about racism. And, and I think it might be much better to teach young people um, about anti-Semitism in the context of teaching them about racism and framing that within anti-racist education. I, I think it can also cause people to miss that I think there is such a thing
0: as a, a sort of anti-Semitic Zionism that we see exemplified
1: in people like Trump. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, so this is one of the reasons why I say, you know, the question isn't, you know, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitic? When does it become anti-Semitic? And and the same the same is with Zionism. The fact that you're a Zionist doesn't give you some sort of inoculation against anti-Semitism. Historically, some of the early supporters of Zionism of the Zionist movement were anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, Balfour, the famous Balfour Declaration, um, you know, also harbored you know, all sorts of anti Semitic ideas. Um, and, and you could say, you know, right the way through to um, some white nationalists like Richard Spencer, who's voiced um, you know, kind of a approving thing about Zionism in the context of his white nationalist. Viktor Orban is another example, he's a supporter of Israel and somebody who's kind of presided over domestic anti Semitism in Hungary. Trump is, is, you know, and many evangelical Christians, you might say, also like John Hagee, who basically said that Jews were more or less responsible for the Holocaust, for their own mass extermination in the Holocaust. Um, So, absolutely, you know. It's not about whether you're a Zionist or non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist. It's a question of whether you believe anti-Jewit anti-Semitic ideas and stereotypes.
0: Before closing out here, I also wanted to ask you about one thing that I, I greatly respect about you is that, you know, people like you or me could have disagreements on aspects of of Zionism. We could debate those things, but I think one thing you've been really strong on is uh the free speech issues and issues like the ihra definition uh could you speak to how we can both combat anti-semitism while also allowing for uh, you know free and open discourse because sometimes i do worry that uh i don't want to use the term weaponized but i i think there's ways in which anti-semitism
1: can be politicized uh by right-wing elements Absolutely. I mean, and sometimes it is. I mean, I would say more often it is that people who are making these charges of anti-Semitism, even if they're ultimately incorrect or unfounded, they're doing so j- sincerely. They may be misguided. So that's why then I don't. Also, you tend to use the term weaponization. I think sometimes it is, and sometimes you know we can see that. And sometimes the Israeli government, you know, in in, in Attacking the human rights organisations, for example, I think sometimes is an instrumental use of the charge of anti-semitism antisemitism uh, to kind of delegitimize human rights groups. Um, uh, but, but on, but, but on, on the question of like, I um, more broadly, I think it's important. There is a growing debate about Israel Palestine and about the future of Israel Palestine, and especially as people with hopes for a two state solution have kind of evaporated, you know, there's growing discussions about other kinds of solutions, one of them being a one-state solution. I don't think that we should try to suppress that debate. I think that is a actually a necessity, given what's happening, uh, not just over the last month, but what's really been happening over decades. Um, and I think it's entirely appropriate for, for people to discuss and to debate and to, to do so freely to consider different Alternatives, and so I really worry that the charge of antisemitism can sometimes have the effect, even if it's not deliberate, of deliberately trying to silence that debate. That it can lead, it can, it can have a, a chilling effect insofar as people can be very wary about saying anything or writing anything in case they get accused of antisemitism. But what I think we need to do is not try to kind of shut down these conversations or. Tell people to refrain from doing so. i talking about it, but rather be able to explain to them when, you know, if you if you, when they when things do cross the line into antisemitism, and so that they can learn. Because most people, I think, don't want to be anti-Semitic. They don't want to say something anti-Semitic, but they don't necessarily know this is an anti-Semitic trope, or they don't necessarily, um, you know, aren't necessarily aware of some of the. The, as you said, the, the history of anti-Semitism. So we need to be able to allow for and sustain uh free speech, both uh, our the rights of free speech, but more broadly, I think it's important to allow for a debate um, and a growing debate about Israel-Palestine without charge without always having these charges of anti-Semitism come up.
0: I want to let you going, but ju- just to close out and, and put a bow on this conversation. I have a lot of uh very I would say pro-Palestinian listeners, um, and and especially Palestinian Americans that listen to this show. And one of the things I hear is they feel like their voice has often been ignored. Um, and I, I know a lot of pro-Palestinian or Palestinian Americans that you know were upset with what happened on October 7th. I want to note that for people. What do you want to say to those Palestinian Americans that have felt ignored? And what do you want to say to them as someone who is trying to combat anti-Semitism and also foster dialogue uh, about Israel-Palestine?
1: I mean, I think I first of all, I can really empathize and understand why that where Why many Palestinian Americans do feel uh, that their experience has been ignored and that, you know, when they in recent weeks when they've come out, to demonstrate solidarity on behalf of of their um, Palestinian brethren in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank, you know uh, that that those aren't express expressions of support for Hamas, and that way in which, you know, particularly some Republican politicians have basically depicted all of these protests or demonstrations is just expressions of support for Hamas and, you know, trying to depict Palestinian Americans or or, uh, others as, as, you know, supporters of terrorism, deeply offensive and basically racist. Um, And so I think it's really important that Jews and Palestinians in this country, in the United States, aren't pitted against each other. I think there are those who want to pit these communities against each other for political reasons. that might to benefit, um, and but I think actually, you know, we, as I said, in this country, in the United States, we have a lot of common interests um, and um, and common enemies, if you will, in form kind of white supremacists, white nationalists, um, but also also ultimately, I think um, Jewish Americans and you know uh, and and Palestinian Americans care deeply about Israel, Palestine, care deeply about this same. You know, um, patch of land. They both have a great attachment to it, and both have and and, and both have a right to have that attachment recognised. And um, and ultimately, and I, I think over the last month, it's been just as it's been unbearable uh, to witness. You know, the the tragedies and the violence in Israel and in Gaza for Jewish Americans. It has been for Palestinian Americans, I and mean, we're both. Suffering at this time, I would, I would love it if, you know, out of this could come a renewed sense or a sense of of solidarity, even if we may disagree about, you know, what is the best political framework going forward, or disagree about some of the historical. I mean, first as I said, there's, I think, um, disagreements within these communities. They're not monolithic, um, but I think the, the the key is not to walk away from engaging with each other and not to see each other as um, simply, you know, it's wrong to depict all Palestinian Americans as just apologists for Hamas, just as it's wrong to depict all Jewish Americans as apologists for Netanyahu and for, or for the IDF.
0: I just wanted to add to that briefly. Uh, I I think people have forgotten about this due to the uh, issues with Rashida Tlaib, but, uh, you know, our Democratic Florida state representative here, uh Angie Nixon asked uh we are at 10,000 dead Palestinians how many will be enough and a Florida lawmaker Michelle Salzman just said all of them and um I think that's a really horrifying thing I think people do need to keep in mind that there is a lot of anti-Palestinian racism right now like I said I want to let you going uh is there anything else you want to add and I I didn't get a chance to ask you this but w- what are your opinions about the debates about the the bombardment of Gaza
1: Well, I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's, this is a, 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 I I can't give you a short answer for this, but I think it's, it's an extremely, I mean, it's a tragedy, first and foremost. It's what's happening to a Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip is, is just atrocious. And first and foremost, you know, my heart goes out. To all the Palestinian civilians. They are not responsible for Hamas's actions, the claims that somehow, you know, there aren't innocent Palestinians in Gaza because they voted for Hamas, you know, 16 years ago is just ridiculous and offensive. Um, and so Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, Palestinian civilians have every right, just as they have just as Jewish Israelis do, and uh, Palestinian Israelis. I mean, ultimately, we need to prioritize the protection of all civilians and um and the and, and innocent people on both sides and um while i think you know I, I i don't think it's um i don't think one can morally equate the actions of Hamas and the actions of the IDF insofar as what Ham- you know I, I don't think Israel is deliberately seeking to uh kill Palestinian civilians or or let alone commit a genocide. I do think that uh, the way in which Israel's been conducting this war even though I think it you know had a has a right to self-defense that doesn't give it carte blanche to um you know uh to engage in the kind of use of force that has led to such massive destruction and casualties on the Palestinian side and I and I think you know there are many people on both sides good you know who who would say look just as we can re- I would say it's, we can acknowledge that Israel, has a legitimate right to self-defense and yet criticize the way Israel is conducting its war in Gaza and the impact that it's having upon Palestinian civilians. Just as we can also recognize that Palestinians have a legitimate right of resistance to occupation, but criticize the way in which Hamas is carrying has carried out that in targeting deliberately targeting civilians and and slaughtering them. So people very often confuse the right with the practice. Uh, And I I think, you you know, actually, when it comes to the practice, we could probably agree more than we disagree uh, that, you know, the civilians on both sides have uh, inalienable rights. And we we can't, um, I think it's wrong to kind of put, a a, a higher value on one set of civilian lives than another.
0: I want to thank you again, Delph Waxman. You stayed on longer than expected with me, so I appreciate that. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Are you involved in any programs right now that my listeners can keep up
1: with? Yeah, so I'm the director of the Nazarian Center for Israel Studies at UCLA, and so we do a lot of public programs. Um, We've got one uh, coming up later this week, actually, panel exploring the attitude of younger Americans to Israel and toward the conflict. And we're going to do uh, other programs. I also have a podcast called Israel in Depth, where I speak with experts and um, scholars about Israel and about Palestine as well. And so um, we're going to be I'm going to be having a number of uh, conversations in the coming weeks about the war and also its long term impact. Uh, and I'm also on uh, on Twitter. So you can follow me there and hear about other things I'm doing on, on my through that.
0: Next up, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's ace reporter Ron Campius joins us for a wide-ranging discussion of American Jewish media outlets, Ron's coverage of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, thoughts on the Jonathan Pollard case and its effect on the Jewish-American political scene. The recent March for Israel rally calls to kick groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, or If Not Now, out of the American Jewish community, remaining objective during times of great turmoil, and much, much more. I thought this was a rather fascinating and thoughtful conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conducting it. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Ron Campius. Welcome to Parallax Views. I guess that I'm very excited to have on uh Ron Campius, the ace reporter at the JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and I I feel like You know, if you follow news involving Israel, Palestine, uh, or just uh, Jewish current events, which I do because I I used to spend a lot of time in the um, Jewish community at Squirrel Hill, you know, I feel like your name pops up whenever I'm looking up a topic. You know, I can look up the topic Jonathan Pollard, and your name will pop up. You report on it. You've reported on Mordecai Venunu. So I feel like you've reported on so much. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you could, uh, before we get into the current events, um, could you talk a little bit about how you got into uh journalism?
2: Uh sure. I was um I was living in Israel in 1987. Uh I was working for like a student advocacy group, but I wasn't making much money. And then uh the first intifada started, and um the or you know, news organizations all over the world were just scrambling for English speakers to uh uh, to report. And there was an Australian radio network that uh, asked me to to report. So I um I signed up and I just got the bug. And soon I was working for the Jerusalem Post and then uh, the Associated Press. And then I, I moved here and I got the job with uh, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency.
0: Are you able to talk about um, maybe the different... I, I think people don't realize that when it comes to you know, different Jewish media outlets that there's a lot of diversity in yeah. terms of political persuasion. So, you know, on one end you could have, um, JNS, which I would say is very right wing. And then, you know, in Israel, you have something like, uh, Haaretz, which is, uh, sort of left-leaning. Uh, could you talk about the differences between the ju- different, uh, publications, uh, in both the American Jewish community and Israel?
2: Yeah, sure. There's a wide variety of publications. We were, um, uh we've been around for more than a century we're like a wire service in our reporting we play it straight we do have like uh, opinion columns um which you just click on opinion on our website you can see those but uh uh the um and for like a, a long time we served a um uh jewish local jewish papers that also more or less played it straight some of them were like affiliated with their um local jewish federations and so those federations tend to have a point of view that's conventionally pro israel so you might see that leaning a little bit in that direction but uh, otherwise um uh and those are you know, we're, those are still our clients they're still very important but they've been shrinking just like all media has been shrinking so you've seen the the rise of um just like in regular media you've seen the rise of more partisan jewish media Forward, the forward is um, is uh, is a, is a straight news outfit outfit, but they're in terms of their coverage, their their ambience, their their zeitgeist, <laughs> they are definitely more liberal left. Um, and you have Jewish Currents, which is even further to the left. And uh, and then you have uh, in Hebrew, it's Israel Hayom. I think it's I forget what it's called uh, in English, uh, but it's uh, it's an English language publication in Israel that has a big American audience, definitely leans to the right. You have the Jewish press, New York-based, which is, you know, even in the days before the internet, when it was a, just a thick, thick newspaper, <laughs> you found on the corner, it leans to the far right. Um, so, yeah, you have a, you know, a a big variety. And then Times of Israel, I think very influential website now. Uh, David Horowitz, its editor, in terms of his editorial opinion, when he does put it up, is very much a, a center-left, I'd say, in the Israeli context. But... Its news is very is just straight down the the middle. Uh, like you mentioned, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, also big uh, English audience here in the states elsewhere. Little leans more to the right um, in, in its. Uh, although it's, I would say that its current publisher Avi Mayer, is more center uh, center right. But I, uh, I
0: was going to say Jerusalem Post has a history of. Uh... You know, it's gone from right to center to it's been in different directions yeah. at different times.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I joined, I was at the Jerusalem Post when it transitioned from definitely being center left to very much on the right uh, because of a change in in, in ownership. And that was quite a shock to the staff at the time.
0: <laughs> One thing I really wanted to talk with you about, because, I, you know, a, a lot of people that listen to the show come from, I, I would say, a very left wing perspective, even further to the left, I try to have a multitude of different voices on though. Um, and I notice a lot of people are focusing on groups like Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, however, there's a there's something I wanted to focus on about the uh, March for Israel rally. I think a lot of people don't recognize there was actually a peace block at that rally. and I, I'm not I, I'm not clear on what they all believe. I follow people like Rabbi Jill Jacobs um, and Hader Susskind, could you talk about what are the beliefs of the peace block that was at the march for israel rally because they're obviously pro-zionist but i think they don't have the same views as maybe um someone who is pro netanyahu
2: oh absolutely yeah the peace block was comprised of um uh of j street of americans for peace now which hadar suskin whom you mentioned is the president of of um Trois, the Rabbinical Human Rights Association, which Rabbi Jill Jacobs uh, directs, and the Progressive Partners for Peace. There was a whole array of them there. Uh, they have their different you know, mild differences between them, but is, is sometimes not even an ideology, more like emphasis. So J Street is more grassroots. Uh, Americans for Peace Now is more like go to Congress and lobby type of thing. Um, but they... Uh, uh, they all agree that uh, you know that they're they're very critical of the Netanyahu government. They're very critical of the settlement and st- enterprise, but they're all pro-Israel and they feel you know they feel that their uh, the positions they adopt are actually protective of Israel because they see uh, the settlement enterprise, the occupation of the West Bank, the whole uh, blockade of the Gaza Strip as eroding. Israel uh, they're very much uh, embrace the idea of Israel as a Jewish and Democratic yeah you know, which I have to say like the other the organizers of the rally the main organizers also do but uh the the difference is that groups like that were in the peace block see the democ- Israel's democracy as being at risk and so um uh, they, they would
0: describe as pro-Palestinian too in a lot of ways, right? Yeah,
2: and they would they would describe themselves as pro-Palestinian as well because they uh, they believe in a two-state solution. They're very much in, in favor of a two-state solution, and they see that that's the best way for both peoples in there. Uh, and they're very con- you know they're very concerned about the um they would see themselves as concerned about the uh, the status of the Palestinians, welfare of the Palestinians. They're you know they're I don't know if you want to get into it, but maybe you do eventually that there's a there's a real Tear right now on the left between, and it it all comes down to whether you're pro ceasefire right now or not pro ceasefire right now. So that's, uh, I mean, actually, there's a very, there was a, just as we're talking, I'm writing a story about Becca Balint being the most, uh, the first Jewish congresswoman to come out in favor of a ceasefire. But I was reading her actual statement, and it's actually, there are differences there between her statement and between the other people who are calling for a ceasefire. I was going to say, so in in following figures
0: like uh, Rabbi Jacobs, I, I, and I wanted to clarify this because I feel like there were some people in that that peace block that weren't necessarily calling for a ceasefire, but they were saying maybe a five day ceasefire uh, with the release of hostages. Is that a belief that exists in that sort of corner of things?
2: Yeah, they they they're calling them uh, humanitarian pauses, and uh, you know the uh, again you get into the. Uh, The technical differences are not small differences, because right now they're saying that the um, I I think a lot of them would say that the four hour uh, pauses that the Biden administration has uh, negotiated with Israel or has pressed Israel into uh, adopting aren't enough, that they need longer pauses. They need to uh, uh, pause long enough to actually bring out at least 50 of the hostages that Hamas is holding and exchanging them for about 100. Uh, All the hostages, all the hostages and the prisoners that would be exchanged would be minors and and women so i think there there's an estimated 50 on the um hamas side that are holding israelis and uh, uh there are about 100 women that is israel and children that israel has uh has been keeping uh, has imprisoned uh, allegedly for committing um uh terrorism although they haven't been charged so that's the that's what they want they want the time to um to to have that exchange and also to bring uh to bring relief into the uh to the Gaza strip there's a whole thing now on to, as to whether Israel has kept its promise to the Biden administration to allow some fuel into the uh into the Gaza strip so that's uh, th- those are the kinds of things they want they want relief for civilians
0: so that's very different from the the sort of Jewish voice for peace and if not now crowd but i, I, I think people sometimes and i'm i'm not saying this uh, antagonistically towards anyone that is from Jewish voice for peace i know i have a few listeners but Uh, I I feel like their their influence is sometimes overstated within the Jewish community, if I'm being objective about it. What about the role of these sort of um, pro-peace groups or more liberal groups like J Street? What is their influence within the Jewish community in America?
2: Uh, I think that, you know, their influence is greater when the, a Democratic administration or Democratic Congress is in power, because that's those are the only people that listen to them. They tried out at the very, you know, 15 years when they started, they did cultivate a few Republican congressmen. Um, but uh, they
0: were sort of trying to break away from a lot of them were from APAC originally, but sort of had issues with it or. Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So they I mean, they have the um, they have the ears of uh, over half the uh, the Democrat, at least a more than half the democratic caucus in in congress and in the um and the senate and they also within the uh with the within the white house as well i think they would have they definitely have a a seat at the table when the white house calls in uh people and so they they their influence j street's influence you've seen it actually in the last 10 years it's 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 allowed democrats to say a lot of democrats to say i'm pro israel uh but i'm going to be critical of the netanyahu government and i think uh, that that J Street with their endorsements and calling themselves a pro-Israel organization, they've given cover to that, and so that's that sort of created a that 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 they've expanded that dialogue within the the within the United States uh, political establishment, not just on the uh, on the margins. Does this
0: also extend to other issues where, I, in some ways, I feel like J Street? Um, opened up a, a space for dialogue or an alternative uh, for maybe liberal Zionists. And I think it's led to other things, too. I was just talking to um, UCLA's uh, Dove Waxman the other day, and we were talking about the, you know, th- there was this debate within the Jewish community about the, I think you've covered this, the nexus. Guidelines for identifying right. anti-Semitism and the IHRA. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and, and just internal Jewish debates about a lot of these issues like anti-Semitism um, and whatnot?
2: Right. So the uh, the IHRA uh definition, um the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition came up like about five or seven years ago. And it was just a, it was, it came up as a recommendation as how one may distinguish. Within academic circles, what is anti-Semitism? What isn't anti-Semitism? And it's kind of taken on the life of its own, where it's become the uh, uh, the definition that lawmakers are seeking to adapt and to put into. Uh, into laws, and uh, when you're talking about an academic recommendation of, like, this is maybe one way that you can identify anti-Semitism, and then you're codifying it into laws, it's two different things. And the problem that the Nexus people had with the uh, IHRA, the IRA definition, is that I think six of the 11 sample examples it gives have to do with Israel. And some of them, uh, you know, some of them are actually legitimate, Uh, you know, comparing Israel to Nazis, comparing anybody to Nazis, uh, you, you probably have a problem with anti-Semitism, because the whole hol- the Holocaust was so sweet generous, some of them are, are too broad, according to people who, who criticize Ira, in, in terms of, uh, like, I think the one that really sticks in the craw is uh, saying that if you don't, uh, applying a double standard to Israel is, um, is anti-Semitic, you know, and that's sort of, it's problematic, because if uh, if your advocacy is focused only on Palestine. Why should, why why would you not why would you focus elsewhere just like anywhere else? If you're like Ukraine, who's criticizing Russia, you're not jamming in Cambodia and uh, you know uh, and Myanmar and everything else. You're criticizing Russia, so it's it's it, it just it's 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 seen as almost uh, too broad. And that was I don't think that was in well we know that it wasn't the intention of one of the original drafters of the language that came to be known as IRA Ken Stern, who used to work for the American Jewish Committee. He says it's become uh too promiscuous in its in its use. And so Nexus was, I think, a an attempt uh by uh, some academics, um, David Bowder and at the University uh in of Washington, I think he's in Seattle, among others. Uh, they were they were trying to sort of be more specific in how um uh anti-Israel rhetoric rhetoric can sometimes cross into uh, anti-Semitism. They were trying to narrow it down. And Dove Waxman, like you mentioned, I think he was involved in drafting that as as well, uh, you know, because they recognize, I think, that uh, there is a, a kind of an- anti-Israel rhetoric that can cross into anti-Semitism, but they didn't want it to be so broad and, like I you know, so promiscuous in its use.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's even led into debates within, I think, the Jewish community about, um, you know, for, for these Jewish Voice for Peace protesters, uh, I've seen some articles saying that these people should not be considered Jews anymore, un and I, I, I think these are like actual debates that happen in the American Jewish community that people aren't aware of.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's true. There's like a there has been like a, you know Avi Mayer, the uh, the publisher of the Jerusalem Post, uh, c- called for that. Some other people, I think David Friedman, the former ambassador to the United uh, to Israel, the Trump administration ambassador to Israel. Uh, you know, I'd say two things about that. That's ridiculous. Nobody's the Pope of Judaism. Nobody can undo anybody. <laughs> but then yeah. uh, on the other hand, like it's all it's so. It's ridiculous, but it's also commonplace. There's always people are saying, no, no, you can't, you know, I don't consider you Jewish anymore. Um, you know, whatever one's opinions, however, first of all, like, you know, one of the definitions of being Jewish is having a Jewish mother. And there's a whole body of Jewish law, even though that applies to the most ultra-Orthodox Jews. that say so you can't un-Jew that person. You can't uh, you can't bring them out. And then, you know, you have the law of return and the the law of return, which is, Actually, separates itself from halacha, from Jewish law. It has to do. It it, it removes the right to be uh, considered for um, re- for immigration to Israel from people who've act- actively converted to another religion. But having different political opinion that doesn't uh, apply. So it's um, it's 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 yeah. They're, they're, that argument's taking place. It always takes place, and, and then it dies down. And I think people realize how ridiculous it is. I wanted to talk a little bit about.
0: Um... I think at the least um, odious end uh, people uh, Americans that have misperceptions about the American Jewish community. so not non-Jewish Americans that have misperceptions. And then on the more odious end, I- anti-Semitism um, out now, out anti-Semitism, uh, recently it was funny. I had someone send me an article you wrote uh, about Jonathan Pollard. Um, the the famous spy, right? And, um, you know, it was reporting about how Pollard was saying all, all Jews should have uh, dual loyalties. And this friend of mine said, is this what Jewish people believe? And I, I was like, first off, to me, that's extremely anti-Semitic that you would generalize like that. Second off, I I think that, you know, making a generalization like that is ridiculous. And I, I've i known Jewish people who are not fans of um, Jonathan Pollard, like Peter Beinert. So can you comment on just the i guess misperceptions people have about the the american jewish community because i feel like with a case like, a case like jonathan pollard uh there's a diversity of opinion in a lot
2: of ways oh yeah there's massive diversity of opinion and it's all it's all very complicated um the you know his his arrest in 1987, it's not just, uh, you know, it wouldn't be just somebody like Peter Peter Beinart, who's well to the left of, uh, in terms of Jewish opinion. His arrest in 1987 triggered a real crisis in relations between uh, Israel and the U.S. diaspora. The uh, uh, mainstream, utterly mainstream organizations like the Anti-Defamation League were appalled that Israel was running running us an American Jew as a spy in the um in the US Navy there was uh there were like op-eds written people were really really uh, American Jewish leaders were really angry at Israel uh for this they said it showed a basic misunderstanding of, of it put American Jews at risk because it put them at risk of having of being perceived as having dual loyalties and they actually that turned out to be true there has been There's this whole side story about American Jews who want to work for the intelligence establishment, who have difficulty advancing because uh, they are subject to or even being accepted into the intelligence establishment because because they're suspected of having dual loyalties. Um, So yeah, for sure. And then like, but it's interesting because then it all gets mixed up because when uh, when Pollard was in prison, um, one of his most uh, adamant defenders was actually the reform. Movement because uh, that although they wouldn't have agreed with Pollard in terms of his uh, now his, his somewhat extreme opinions on um, on uh, Israeli policy and they were certainly wouldn't have agreed with running an, a, an American spy they felt the, the reform movement felt that he was judged too harshly that his life imprisonment in, in sentence was excessive so yeah definitely a big range of uh, opinions and nobody nobody would accept his idea that all Jews should be dual loyal. I mean, what the uh, APAC or ADL would say was that they see um, the relationship with Israel as an American value and they will um, embrace it as far as uh, American values go. And then, uh, you know, and sometimes it actually, uh, it puts APAC in a difficult position because AIPAC can never be seen, it feels that it can never be seen as critical of any Israeli government. But, you know, other organizations like the American Jewish Committee, like the ADL, they will criticize Israeli politicians and uh, policies, and this this is what happened before this war break broke out uh, with the whole debate over judicial reform in Israel. They will criticize policies that they see as not aligned with their uh, their values as American Jews. They might not do it as robustly as some would, would 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 want, but they they do do it. I wanted to ask one more question about the
0: Pollard case since you've reported on it. Um, what what do you think drove Pollard? Because I, I've had some um Jewish reporters tell me that they they get the impression Pollard um has sort of reinvented himself after the fact is this big you know uh I, I love Israel guy when really he may have been driven more by financial interests. What what's your gauge on him?
2: Um you know he, he would say that uh that yes, he was taking money from the um from the Israeli government, but that was uh, he was ready to do it for free. And that his handler Rafi uh, Etan uh, insisted on paying him because he wanted that relation codified. The uh, there's always been um, reports, and he's denied them. Uh, but people have said that he was taking money from other governments as well. Uh, yeah, I he, think South uh, Africa gets mentioned right, at times. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and um, he's adamantly denied those reports. I mean, I know I know people who knew him at the time, who interviewed at the, him at the time for various jobs. They there's, they they there's, they describe a guy who was really kind of enamored with his own Im- importance. He thought it was a very important person. And he, um, um, and that, that in terms of like asking what, what drove him, I think that that would definitely, um, have been a, um, uh, a factor as well, at least in terms of of people I've spoken to who knew him, know him. You, you mentioned,
0: uh, the sort of criticisms, um, with the judicial reform and whatnot that have come the way of, uh, Netanyahu, um. You know, in the past year or so uh, from a lot of American Jewish institutions, is that changing now because of October 7th? And it is if it is, do you think that'll hold or do you think that'll maybe change as as things go forward?
2: Well, what's changed is that uh, Netanyahu has suspended at the judicial reforms. He had to, in order to build a national unity government and to bring Benny Gantz in, who was a prominent critic of the judicial reforms. I don't think it's changed much. I think that you know, if this war were to go away tomorrow, it would it would resume. I think that um, uh, you know, in terms of anticipating what might happen after the war ends, the uh, some of the most uh, you know enthusiastic and adamant uh, volunteers to to sign up for a reserves. T- duty or to actually go to the um, because uh, the, uh, the 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 communities along the near Gaza and near the northern border have lost a lot of workers and so there are people who are volunteering to go and cultivate and to pick crops to make sure that they don't die. These are people who were part were who were who are, uh, like uh, opposing the uh, judicial reforms who were coming out in their masses. So they're, you know, they were accused by Netanyahu before this of not being patriotic. Uh, and now they're going to come up with the credibility of of really being among the most patriotic people. So that that I think they're going to be able to carry that into the um, into the debate going forward. Also Netanyahu, it's I, I don't the guy's a survivor. He's uh, kind of amazing in terms of how he's uh, he's lasted this long. I don't see him surviving this. Not because I'm saying that he personally is at fault. There 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 are like arguments at saying that he was looking the other way for a bun, a different whole bunch of reasons on October the seventh. None of it, yeah, the
0: whole focusing, I guess there was that issue with um uh thinking that Gaza was contained, basically, and okay. also putting a lot of security forces into the West Bank. Um exactly. And also, I, I know in Israel, and I don't know what it's like in the US, that's what I want to gauge here. In Israel, I've seen like protests by the, the families of the hostages. It seems like he's catching a lot of heat there. Do you think there's also a contingent in the American Jewish community uh that is very upset with Bibi or –
2: I don't know. I, th- I mean, there, there are people in the American Jewish community who have long been upset with Bibi, whether that's intensified. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's like I don't, I see people on the uh, American Jewish right here who are still very much um, pro-Bibi. Uh, so, sorry, was I, that- I was I-
0: going to say not to interrupt you, but I since I mentioned Jill Jacobs earlier, I was horrified seeing people. Um, and it's just randoms so on Twitter that are like. I think right wing Bibi supporters saying you can't be Bibi that makes you anti Israel that is anti Semitic and I I wonder how much those sort of right wing voices
2: uh, matter right now. Well, you know what's interesting is I don't I don't know if they're listening to the uh, to the Israeli right because I'm seeing people who are previous I mean his his popularity has plummeted in Israel and I've seen people on the on the right uh, you know just to, anecdotally in social media who used to be very uh, big boosters of Netanyahu who are like absolutely exordiating him now in terms of academics. There's a guy named Martin Kramer who was pretty much centered, right? And like, if you look at his po- postings now, it's just utterly, utterly like, you know, you you failed, you have to go. And I think that that's, I don't think Bibi survives that. Whatever one says about the degree to which he was responsible for looking the other way, he was the prime minister at the at the worst breach of Israeli security in its history. Uh, Golda Meir, who was the the prime minister of the second worst breach of Israeli security, resigned, not because she necessarily felt that she was actually responsible for the breach, but because she was the prime minister. She had no choice. You couldn't preside over something like that and survive politically. So I don't know if like uh, I don't see how Netanyahu survives now. I don't know if he has the kind of sort of introspection that Golda had and he resigns himself or if he's forced out. But after this war is over, I just don't see him politically surviving.
0: One thing I wanted to talk about was I I know there's a lot of people in the American Jewish community right now that are very upset with figures like, um, say Rashida Tlaib and uh, because of the, from the river to the sea. And I understand why people would react that way to that slogan. I think he talked with Robert Wright of non-zero about this. I don't think that Tlaib is calling for genocide. I mean, she is calling, I think for a one state solution and, you know, I think people can debate that. Um, But what I guess what I'm getting at is I think there's a lot of focus right now on uh, anti-Semitism from the left or fear of anti-Semitism from the left. Is there still or is there an emerging fear about anti-Semitism from the right in light of what's happened in the past few days with, um, you know, Tucker Carlson came out and was talking about, you know, the Jewish billionaires didn't care about us and white genocide. And Charlie Kirk just did the same thing. Elon Musk. Uh, I know the focus has been on left anti-Semitism uh, for the past month now for a lot of people, but do you think uh, there's also going to be more focus on right-wing anti-Semitism within the American of the focus, Jewish community?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the focus before October the seventh was very much on right-wing anti-Semitism. You had the whole trial in Pittsburgh, where where you are, about the for, for um, Robert Bowers, the man who carried out the uh, you know the October. 2018 worst attack on Jews in in history and like there that that focus is still very much there and not only that like you're you're having this manifestation of Elon Musk and uh, Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk but you're also having like far right bringers amplifying some of the things that the people who defend Hamas are Hamas are saying there's almost there's this you know what they call the shoe, uh, the um, horseshoe theory they're uh, they're they're kind of uh, allying themselves so yeah that's definitely not going away and I, I also think just by the by, I think you're right about Rashida Tlaib. I think that she's using a phrase that has roots in a very sort of eliminationist idea, but she's sort of adopted it and adapted it to this sort of uh, uh, binational state thing. I mean, you know, a couple of months ago, I didn't go very noticed, but I was able to I, I did a story because she spoke to a group of Jewish high schoolers and um, uh, who are also, you know, very sort of themselves, the high schoolers on on the left and were curious about her. And she said something that she hasn't said anywhere else in which she said that she's told other palestinians that you can't uproot the settlers because it would be like another nakba you have to live with the settlers where they've settled because they've been there so long that's not a person who wants to live you you know throw jews into the sea she's that's somebody like you said her the whole idea of a binational state is completely up for debate whether it's viable or or fair or 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 you know top respects jewish history or whatever but that's definitely not a person who is aligned with Hamas's, uh, you know, kill Jewish people ideology. That's quite the opposite, in fact. So you you do think there is going to be uh,
0: that, that the American Jewish community, the institutions of it are they're not going to back away now from pointing out right wing anti-Semitism. Not, not that I think they, not that I ever thought that that would happen, but I guess I, I'm just seeing this develop now and I'm hoping that people are keeping
2: an eye on it. Uh, no, I don't think it's, uh, it's going to happen. I think that, you know, the controversy is going to continue where like, um, Jonathan Greenblatt, the director of the Anti-Defamation League equates anti-Zionism with, um, with that kind of right-wing thing. That was very controversial before the October the 7th, I think maybe now, and he was doing it like long for at least a year now where he was saying anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, that you, you get as much of the threat as the left. Uh, and, um, he, um, he, uh, uh, and and uh you know that since October the seventh, he actually has kind of like ammunition in not just in terms of the Hamas attack because that's not, you know, Hamas aren't left wing. they're Islamist, but in terms of the um uh, the fact that you had people like on the far left and this is a whole other thing who have not criticized it, uh, the attack who have um are, I mean uh, one one of the things I've seen, and I
0: I really don't like this line, and I think it's a very different from from what someone like Rashida Talib or Peter Beinert believe in. Uh I've seen people say go back to Poland and I think that's horrific. You know, yeah. so I mean he that is giving you know figures like
2: Greenblatt ammunition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was a a professor at uh at University of Montreal in, in Canada, Montreal, who was um uh uh, who who said that and was fired for saying it? And that you know that's he's not somebody. He wasn't somebody who was on the right or was Islamist. He was somebody on the left, and that's uh, yeah, that's that's definitely problematic from a, a Jewish perspective.
0: No, I, I I get all that. I'm saying I I, I, I hope that that there won't be um, a turning of a blind eye towards the right wing anti semitism or thinking oh maybe we can work with this person who I mean it, so this has come up with the John Hagee being at the March for Israel. I was wondering if you'd want to comment on that.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Hagee is, uh, he has a, you know, he has a a theology and an eschatology that I think a lot of Jews would find offensive. But I think that he's kind of, uh, his his main agenda is protecting Israel. And, uh, you know, his idea of how Israel should be protected. And what, one thing you'll, you know, ever since this stuff came out 15 years ago about his views of, uh, uh, you know, that uh, Hitler, as evil as he was, was an instrument of getting the Jews to go to Israel, that kind of thing, that if, he hasn't said those things in 15 years because he doesn't want the focus to be on that. And so if you notice, he, he, there were a lot of objections to his uh, appearing at the March for Israel, but nothing he said was offensive. He kind of talked at the end. And um, so I, I wouldn't put him in the, in the category of people like Charlie Kirk and uh, Elon Musk, and in terms of your, you know, your what you're raising about the Jewish establishment, just you know, look at what the American Jewish Committee put it, put on on X, formerly known as Twitter, about Elon Musk. They were very, very critical. They're, they they said that this is prom- if they're not just critical of him for saying it, they're saying this is promoting the Great Replacement theory, which is a specifically far right wing theory that Jews are somehow. Uh, you know, getting people of colors to re- people of color to uh, replace whites. So you'll, that shows, and an, an ADL, which he specifically attacked, also said the same thing. And so you're, you know, their their focus is still um, they're still worried about the right wing.
0: Okay, um, just a few more brief questions here. You know, one thing I I first became interested in. Um, a lot of this through the debates about Israel-Palestine and and just growing up around those debates for various reasons. Uh, and over the years, I knew a lot of Palestinians at first, and I've gotten to know a lot of Israelis since then. And, you know, um, even just American, uh, Zionists. And one thing that's very interesting to me is right now, both my Palestinian friends and my American Jewish friends both feel a sense of, um, I keep hearing this line, I feel very alone right now. Uh, And it's interesting to me because I think they're both feeling that in their own ways. Uh, Maybe you could talk about those feelings and why people in the American Jewish community have that feeling. I know you you can't necessarily comment on the
2: Palestinian side, but. It's interesting because uh, just to, to that, Elisa Slotkin the Jewish uh, uh, congresswoman from Michigan, who's running for the Senate, said she's had, and Michigan has a big Arab American, Muslim American population. She said she's had conversation with Jews and Muslims and Arabs, and she came away from the same thing. They're all saying we we feel alone right right now. Uh, you know, in in the Jewish context, I I do think it has to do with um, with just the 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 failure to. It's two things. I mean, uh, what I found interesting is that you had like two, at least two. Um, far left quite left uh, American Jews uh, Joshua Leifer and Peter Beinart who were uh, observant of the holiday uh, on which the Hamas massacre occurred and I think they kind of saw it acutely because if you're going if you're in synagogue going to services in the holiday and a Sunday night I'm sure you're hearing from your friends that there's this horrible massacre that went on in um in southern Israel and then um and then what the thing the first thing you do as soon as the holidays over, as you log in, you're not allowed to use electrical devices. You log on and you see just tons and tons of comments, and a lot of them were praising Hamas. And to see that in a in a single go, that was just I think it was it was just rattling for them. It really uh, threw them off. And I think so. That's a a condensed version of I think what a lot of uh, Jews have felt in that they want an acknowledgement. You know how however left they are, they they want an a- a- acknowledgement of how horrific. Uh, the uh, events of October the 7th were, and they're not necessarily hearing them from their friends on the progressive left. And so you're seeing, I think, you know, and I've seen this also with my friends who are on the left, who are on social media, some of them, not all of them, a couple of them are commenting every day on on the horrific effect of the war on Palestinian civilians, which is, of course, they're, they're right. But they didn't comment on October the seventh, which is just—it strikes me as weird. Like, uh, why wouldn't you? Why would you skip a, a skip over that? And so I think it's a, um, and that's like for uh, you know (laughs) I heard it from like one of my medical providers, just a a Jewish person who uh, was just like knows who I am and started talking to about it. That was exactly her um, phrase: "I feel so alone because uh, they." uh, I think they were rattled um not necessarily by the election of uh, Donald Trump per se although i think some people were rattled by that but the, by his equivocation after charlottesville realizing that you had a president who wouldn't completely unequivocally come out and condemn uh a neo nazi a deadly neo nazi march and uh, and then seeing the violence that occurred during his term not just in um not just in pittsburgh but in poe in california and then of course there's like Violence that's anti-Semitic violence that, tire, tire, that uh, targets other communities, like in Buffalo or in El Paso, and just seeing that flourishing, and feeling like you know scared that that's happening, not not quite understanding what's happening to on the Republican side, where uh, you know you had like a a very Jewish-friendly party until two thousand sixteen, and then uh, and then seeing it now crop up on the on the far left as well. Uh, and and uh, and and not seeing, you know, not feeling that the condemnation of of it is, is uh, is robust enough from some sectors of the of the so-called moderate left. They're they're very. The poll just came out. I think Jews are very very happy with the president, with Biden, and what he's done because he's been so robust in standing by Israel in this case and and condemning the attacks. But um, uh, you know, like uh, so. Rashida Tlaib, but at one point, you know, and uh, yeah, like I said, I don't think that this is a person who wants Jews to be slaughtered in their place. But she, she said, I, you know, on the floor of the of when she was being censured in Congress, she says, I hear the cries of Palestinian children as well as I hear the cries of Israeli children. But October seventh, she didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. She didn't put anything on social media. Uh, she put out a very equiv- equivocal statement, a very vague statement on October the eighth. Uh, And and so, you know, that's the kind of like the failure to speak that that for some, I think, is even more pointed and and harder to take than the people who are on the far left who are praising Hamas. Uh, So I think that's where the aloneness comes from.
0: In that regard. See, I hear the same thing from, you know, Palestinian and also Muslim friends. So right now I am initially from Pittsburgh. Right now I'm in Florida. And this place is, oh, just horrible DeSantis land. Um, But, you know, I have friends here in the Muslim community that had to, it was in our, you know, it was all over the news. Uh, This representative, Michelle Salisman, said all of them when she was, one of the other congressmen basically said, how many dead Palestinians will it take? And this Michelle Salisman said all of them. And my Muslim friends are like, well, why is no one speaking up for us? I just, I guess, what I'm pointing out is, I find it very interesting that I think uh, Jewish Americans and Muslim, or just Palestinian Americans, because I know Palestinian Christians as well, uh, I think are having a lot of the same emotions. And in a way, I think emotions are just too high right now for each of them to see that, and maybe for there to be more dialogue.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that the the uh, um, you know, there's almost like a willingness only to see the uh the 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 lack of empathy or you know, there's like, uh, you know, they they it's it's hard for people to like to notice that there has been empathy coming from both sides. But yes, absolutely Brian Mast, a Florida Congressman, uh talking about expelling Palestinians, all all Palestinians who aren't actually citizens here. that that I could imagine would have been a very, very scary moment for uh, for Palestinian Americans. the de- deliberate. Confusion sometimes of uh, not confusion, conflation of all Palestinians with Hamas also problematic. You know the uh, uh, the the that uh, you get people, for instance, um, again the former ambassador David Friedman. You have Alan Dershowitz saying that the you know they overwhelmingly voted for Hamas in elections. The elections were in two thousand and six. And and while the, um, for some bizarre gerrymandering reason, while their representation in the parliament was overwhelming, they actually only got 44 or 45 percent of the vote. I was and- going to say, I needed you to confirm. Thank you
0: for confirming that, because I keep hearing overwhelming majority, overwhelming. But my understanding was that it was a, a bare plurality that they got yeah, by on.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. 45, 44 to 45 to 41 percent uh, for Fatah, and that's because others... Because Fatah was corrupt, and, the, and that that whole election was run on the, on the corruption issue, and um, and then polling doesn't even bear it out. The uh, you know the ironic thing is uh, that you get nobody has a majority, but Hamas gets is more popular in the West Bank than it is in the Gaza Strip, and you know the assumption I think it's is that probably Gazans actually know what it's like to live under Hamas, so they they score very low when you have accurate polling among um, of Gazan Palestinians. So the the conflation. Um, And so so seeing that conflation, I can see is going to be very worrying for Palestinians because you're you're basically it it looks as if you're trying to excuse uh, the um, uh, the suffering that the Palestinians civilians are undergoing. Uh, Just two more questions. Uh,
0: So even I, I'll be honest, even I've had and I'm I'm sure you've had it, too. I've had high emotions at times. I keep telling people I feel like I've been on a roller coaster the past. Month and I mean it's much worse for a lot of other people, but uh, you know, I I've uh, gotten angry a few times in the past month. I know when uh, Rabbi Wool died, you know, uh, may she rest in in peace. You know, I just saw people saying, "Oh, this is Rashida Talib's fault," or arguing that it was a a hate crime immediately. And as far as I know, they ruled that out. Um, I don't know if you have any updates on the Wool case though.
2: You know, they had a they had a person of interest that they arrested briefly and then they had to leave uh, let go after 72 hours she's a um she wasn't a rabbi she was the president she was a lay leader of her um of her synagogue but yeah, oh my apologies that, that's okay the so she um i know there are no updates i think but the police like you said they've ruled out a hate crime i think because they uh my understanding was that she let someone into that house
0: so it was probably someone that knew her
2: right and i think that's why they ruled out a hate crime uh that uh uh, she was found on the, you know in front of her house and they concluded that she'd come out of the house seeking help because she'd been stabbed to death and so the the stabbing actually took i think it took place inside the house so she would have and there was no sign of forced entry so and then looked, she she would have crawled out after
0: right right okay. exactly right. do
1: you
0: do you think as a journalist how important do you feel that your job is right now because like i said i mean immediately after wool uh was murdered and it became news people are immediately jumping saying this is most definitely a hate crime and i feel like you as a journalist we need people like you because there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of high emotions and people are just going to jump on a story and say this is what caused it do you feel like you as a journalist um have a responsibility to be sort of clear and objective about all these things
2: yeah absolutely it's like you know the whole the point is to try and get the uh uh, the information out as fast as possible I mean we had a little bit of a a crisis uh a week or so ago when that man was knocked down and f- and and died in in Los Angeles um because it happened during a, a confrontation between Palestinian pro-palestinian and pro-Israeli uh pro-Israel uh protesters in Los Angeles it wasn't clear exactly what happened but the Los Angeles Jewish Federation was saying that it was uh it seemed to have been a, uh, a, uh, a deliberate attack. And so, uh, you know, we, the Los Angeles Jewish Federation is not the police. And the police are now saying it was a deliberate attack. But at the time, the police weren't saying it, the Federation was. So we just, you know, we had to get the story out, but we also had to attribute it up the wazoo, make sure that this is not what we're saying. This is what another organization is saying. And it's a fairly reliable, it's not an insane uh outfit who's saying this but they're saying this so, so we have to report it in that way but that's like that's typical of any dilemma you don't want to get ahead of uh the news uh you're getting a lot of I, you know, i'm surprised even responsibility responsible people like you say on the on the conservative side of politics are are angry that the police in uh detroit aren't coming out and saying that samantha wall's death wasn't a hate crime it's but they're not saying it because like I, i'm i presuming they don't have any evidence so far that it was a hate crime and they're they're being responsible I was
0: going to say I wanted to uh, thank you for noting that w- with that story of the man who fell down and and whatnot. Um, I think you've noted elsewhere that there was a, a a woman in with a Palestinian flag that ran up to try to help him. Yeah, so that was kind right. of a heartening moment. That
2: was a very poignant moment that she you know that she immediately went to try and attend to him. And it's like a it's it's really a there's like a, it's one of those moments that really speak to like you know, the humanity of our, our times and hopefully that you know something that will come out of that will emerge with when, when this is all calmed down.
0: I just wanted to ask you one last thing. And then I know I have to let you go and I've already kept you a little bit over, but um, you know, I was in Pittsburgh when the synagogue shooting happened and I know that you went from DC. Uh, I think you were maybe even on vacation. If I read the article, right. Uh, that you, you reminisced on this, but you ended up going from DC to Pittsburgh and immediately covering uh, the story uh, how did how did that story affect you and what were the challenges of it because I think there's a poignancy in how you uh talk about covering that story
2: well it was a um you know getting in the 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 story itself was like uh it was very hard to cover at first because uh it was just like I you know it was the the worst attack you you know I'm I'm actually an immigrant here from Canada originally I lived in Israel a long time uh And you come embracing the American idea and American pluralism, and you see this redoubt, not just of anti-Semitism, but a very specific American brand of anti-Semitism, playing out in a in a a suburb just like any other suburb where um, uh, Jews might live. And then, um, you know, covering the trial, this was the killer was unrepentant uh, and insistent, and he has and he he didn't exist in a vacuum. He he was nurtured in, in part by his uh, his uh, you know fellow travelers on Gab, which is a fairly uh, which is a social media platform for the far right, and I don't think it's a tiny one. And he, and he he fell into this uh, theory, and it was a, uh, and and then you had this uh, bizarre claim by the defense that. Uh, His anti-Semitism is what proves he was insane because anti-Semitism is so alien. Well, unfortunately, it isn't. I mean, I I really wished I lived in the um, the fantasy world that the defendants, the defense lawyers, lived in, where they where where anti-Semitism is so bizarre that it can be classified as a form of insanity. But it, it it isn't, and it's pervasive, and that was very. That was hard to, uh, you know, and just sort of entering his world and entering his mind when I covered the trial. There were people who did it every day. Godspeed to them. That was like, it must have been very hard. I did it like about two or three days a a week, I think it averaged out. What was
0: the biggest challenge for you in in covering that story?
2: uh, Just like, you know, just being objective and and remaining and clear-eyed about it, which I was able to do, I think, I hope until the... Until after it was over, which I kind of like sort of had like an emotional reckoning with everything that I'd heard and seen. So that was uh, that was the that was the hard part. I mean, uh, you know, like the. Just, uh, you know, hearing what the defense had to say, listening to them, you know, I think that they actually during the death penalty phase, they had some pretty potent arguments against the death penalty that were uh grounded in in uh in legitimate in the in in legitimate arguments that take place within the american uh, spectrum about the efic- efficacy of the uh the death penalty and whether it's a just solution so you know reporting those out and making sure i had that no matter what animus i might have personally felt towards this person who like i said he who was unrepentant he refused to look at the witnesses who were testifying he would look away and scribble uh, this is a, you know, a truly awful person, but but nonetheless, trying to, having to, you know, give his, him and his defense their due. How how have you managed, this is the most important
0: question for me, is, you know, in, in hearing you speak with Robert Wright, I felt that you were being very objective the whole time through. And I think it's been very hard for a lot of us to be objective, whether it was on October 7th or the bombing that has happened since in Gaza. How do you maintain that? objectivity uh i know that's a personal question
2: but i think you just uh, you always have to um kind of separate yourself from events and um and uh you know not just report what the other side is saying but to contextualize it uh, against the the facts that's the, the the that's the 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 only thing you can do is to sort of uh separate yourself while you're writing and while you're observing from uh from who, who you are you know you um before i were i joined the jta i was at associated press i was reporting from afghanistan uh that's not a you know necessarily an environment i didn't tell anybody it was jewish but it wasn't an, an environment that would necessarily welcome me as jewish but i still had to listen and um and report without thinking like you know i'm jewish these people wouldn't like me if they knew i was jewish i didn't have i didn't get into that mind while I was writing there. I just got into the mind of like, this is what's happening. This is, these are the people who are suffering. These are the people who are causing the suffering and, um, and reporting that out. Well, Hey, I think that's a great note to end on. Ron
0: Campayas, I want to thank you for coming again uh, on Parallax Use. Uh How can my listeners keep up with you? You're on uh, Twitter or X or whatever it's called.
2: Yes, I'm at Campias, K-A-M-P-E-A-S. And also just to, you know, read our website, subscribe to our newsletters. They're free. Uh, JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, dot or O-R-G. And so uh, that's the best way to keep up with us. Well, that does
0: it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you found enlightening, thoughtful, my conversations with Ron Campeus and... Dove Waxman. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Parallax Views. I've been working at a breakneck pace lately, and I really need your help to sustain this show. I have one major advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. But other than that, I rely on your support, listener support on Patreon. So one more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said. Until next time. You've been listening to Parallax Views with Jeralax Michael. Views. To Parallax Views with Jeralax Michael.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit it. If nothing else,
2: if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right?
1: So, you know, we have to confront the problem.